The story was told some years ago of a pastor who found the roads blocked one Sunday morning and was forced to skate on the river to get to church, not in California, which he did. When he arrived, the elders of the church were horrified that their preacher had skated on the Lord's day. After the service, they held a meeting where the pastor explained that it was either skate to church or not go at all. Finally, one of the elders asked, did you enjoy it? When the preacher answered no, the board decided it was all right. You laugh at that because some of you have been in the church a while. And you know that there are certain expectations that are put on pastors and elders and people that attend church. And then let's not even think about, well, let's think about all the expectations of those who identify with Christ as we leave these walls today. We spent a lot of time in this series speaking about two things in the book of Acts. The message of grace spreading and flourishing and contending for the truth of the gospel against false teaching. Today we will see what I think most churches, based on what I've experienced, is very important as I've been in the church for over 20 years. Are you ready? Meetings. Oh my gosh, there are a lot of meetings in Christianity. Now I guess you could call what we are currently doing a meeting, but it's not the type of meeting I'm talking about. It's besides the gathering of the saints, which this is. It's a council meeting or a meeting to discuss information. It is a meeting to gather bodies and have votes, to utilize Robert's rules. And if you don't know what that is, God bless you. And to find a consensus in a quorum. And if your eyes begin to roll in the back of your head, you are not alone. But while not all meetings are unnecessary, like I'm acting as if they are. There are some meetings that are vital to the health of the community of believers in the church. One of those meetings we have every month. It is known as an elder meeting. And this is where some shepherds within the church who are willing and are faithful to care and pray for this community gather. We always discuss the word. We always pray. We always laugh, for the record. I hope that's okay. And we always talk about the well-being of this community as a whole. As one of the leaders here at COV, I personally need this time of monthly gathering to be around other people who care for this community and care for me as one of the pastors. Another meeting that we have that is vital to this community is our staff meetings, which exist to make sure that those who have responsibility over different facets of this community are on the same page, of the same motivation, and understand the process of what we're doing here. There are plenty of other meetings that happen within the Christian community. Mike calls many of them huddles. <laughs> but what do you do when within a movement of a message where the message begins to be changed or de-emphasized? Well, as we've been reading in the book of Acts, we see that Paul and Barnabas, who have been talking or taking the gospel message of grace to the ends of the earth, specifically to Gentile heavy areas of the map have been preaching a message of what? Saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. But there are those inside the church that have been perversing and changing this message to be more of a saved by your own work kind of religion. So what happens? A meeting, yay, a big meeting. One that has repercussions in eternity. I would be so bold to say a meeting that made it so you could understand the gospel today. 
And as we study this meeting, we'll see how imperative it is to them and to us that they stopped and met to discuss the importance of the message that they were proclaiming. So verse one, certain people, Luke writes, came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Luke begins with certain people. (laughs) I take this to imply that this was a subset of individuals who had been misled and now are misleading others. He doesn't imply perhaps that they, uh, what we might tend to assume when we read this, that they were malicious. They, from all accounts, are very sincere in their belief. But what we have always said about sincerity is you can be very sincere and you can still be sincerely wrong. And what we have here is a certain group of individuals who have been misled to believe that the gospel is one of effort rather than grace. Because of this and our human condition, this was being believed and accepted by many who might have been consistent in their reading of scripture. They might have read the Bible daily, but had viewed the message that the apostles were now preaching about grace from the same Hebrew scriptures that they read, the Old Testament, people were starting to see it as incorrect or maybe incomplete. Essentially, what was being communicated was that in order to become a Christian, you first had to become a Jew, and that there was a pecking order to how this worked. In this case, it was those who observed the Hebrew tradition of circumcision. They were then allowed to become a Christian after having that tradition met. Okay, here's the thing. While we sit here today in 2022, I think, that's the year, it's all been a blur. We might think it's absurd to those of us today who grasp that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. And adding to the grace of God is really the consistent heresy and stumbling block that mankind has been consistently doing to the gospel message ever since Jesus rose from the dead. The thing striking about what Luke, the author of this letter, is writing is that these certain people pointed out that those who didn't get circumcised could not be saved. Listen, one of the most scandalous and truly amazing things about the gospel message is there is no one beyond the grace of God. No one. No politician, no dictator, no murderer, No thief, no pastor, no priest, no humanitarian, no good Samaritan. No one has outsinned the power of the cross so much that in this life, the invitation of Jesus trading his life for ours is rescinded. While you have breath in your lungs and the ability to think, God can save you. Not by a work that you can do, but by the gift of grace, getting what you do not deserve by receiving what Jesus has done for you. And this is the scandalous invitation that is actually receivable for any type of person. So not only do I personally take offense from these certain people saying that you must do something to be saved, listen to Christian music only, But the ridiculous religion that exerts the assumption that someone cannot be saved. Now, I'm going to get really honest, and you guys are going to judge me, and that's fine. Do I wish that Hitler was saved? No. I probably don't, because I'm a judgmental individual who would prefer that I earn grace like everyone else. 
But like Hitler, I can't earn grace. Not because I, not, and this isn't about me being an evil dictator who attempted to wipe out a race of people, but because any of my sin, which is still a constant struggle for me, let me be real about that, separates me from a holy and perfect God. And so spiritually, I might as well be Hitler because I am without excuse when it comes to my separation from God due to my own choices and decisions to reject God and pursue my own way. So don't compare yourself against Hitler in your sin, church. Compare yourself to Jesus and realize he's perfect and repent, change direction, and trust that his work on your behalf, which is grace, is sufficient to save you. Okay, let's continue. I will literally stay in this verse all day. Verse two, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, these certain people. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this very question. This is a, and if you're taking notes, I recommend you write this down because I might keep hitting this one specific thing. This is a anti-grace message that these certain people have brought. Which, by the way, is what any religious message that does not point to Christ being the one offering salvation through his work instead of our effort and work was something that Paul and Barnabas fiercely opposed. It was something they decided was worth conflicting with. And for whatever reason, I I mean, I've, I've been a Christian for over 20 years now. For whatever reason, Christianity has become a faith that many believe is all about agreeing with one another and living in unity. Now, is there anything wrong with those two things? No, not at all. In fact, it's how it ought to be if the gospel of grace is central. But as we are reading here in the book of Acts, and as we're in Acts 15, and really all of this letter, where the gospel message of grace is proclaimed, conflict and debate are present also. Why? Because the gospel message is that important. The gospel message is so important that we as believers need to be equipped with this message. That's why we don't shut up about it. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Woo! We talk about this a lot here. And we don't just talk about the gospel as a quick, cheap one-liner, even though I just made it one. But we grasp how the word of God revolves around and reveals this gospel message of grace, and by doing so, we're equipped, each of us, each of us who are willing to trust Christ for his salvation are equipped to contend for the faith and the truth of God's word. And so by doing this, by being exposed to the truth of the gospel message, we are then prepared when a counterfeit message is presented. I'll tell you what, (laughs) that was like Southern. I'll tell you what, I really, really, really struggle with separating the certain people from the enemy. Just me? Now, by enemy, I mean Satan. Could it be Satan? That's a Saturday Night Live reference for some of you. I mean the devil, Lucifer. Not the cartoon version of the devil with the pitchfork and the horns that kids are gonna dress like tomorrow, uh, tomorrow. yeah. But the angel of light who tempted Jesus in the desert misquoting and perversing the very scriptures that Jesus embodies. Our fight, though, is not with the messengers who have been misled. 
but it is with the spiritual entity behind the message of anti-grace. Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's a good passage to tattoo yourself with. The reality is that these certain people who were misled by the enemy in their pride, who wanted to add to the gospel message of grace, they were not the problem. It was the misleading message that they had been taught. A spirit of the Antichrist, as John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, puts it in his letters to the believers in 1 John, and many of you have studied this specific passage with me lately. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is, <laughs> is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, I don't want to lose you, but hear me. For many years, I kind of ignored this warning in Scripture because John, John's telling this to the early church because honestly, it sounded to me, uber spiritual. It sounded extreme. Anyone else? What I just read? A little extreme? Okay, just me. Okay, cool. <sighs> Testing the spirits kind of sounded like Ouija board stuff, doesn't it? And the Antichrist tended to be the accusation of those zealous people screaming on a street corner. But what John is saying is much more subtle. It's much more relevant to us today than we realize. John was addressing a form of Gnosticism that had infiltrated the church, a false teaching a, a, that said that anything material or anything in the flesh was evil. And so Jesus couldn't be God because he came in the flesh. And so John says to test the spirits, which isn't a Halloween reference at all, but a teaching, as he alludes to, saying that many false prophets who would teach and speak on God's behalf had come into the world. And so this spirit he speaks of isn't just a spiritual feeling, but it's a spiritual teaching. One that denies Jesus's prominence and coming in the flesh as God. And listen, to not really believe and trust and, and teach that Jesus came from God isn't just a bad thing. It's not a little off, but what does John call it? He calls it the spirit of the antichrist. And if you just mentally went to some really bad Kirk Cameron movies, I understand. I don't blame you. But the reality is to take away from Jesus's deity is the spiritual teaching of the Antichrist. And it's not to be patted on its head, but to be contended against within the church community. But as we have said, the messenger is not the enemy. The messenger is not the devil and not the Antichrist. But what is without knowing it, probably, is proclaiming the spiritual teaching of the Antichrist. And the purity and the truth of this gospel message was so important that it brought Paul and Barnabas into the text, a sharp debate over this false teaching, which then led Paul and Barnabas and some other believers to be appointed to go back to the church in Jerusalem, the original church, and many of the apostles still were there to discuss the matter. Here's what it says, verse 3. The church sent them on their way 
And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So they traveled pretty far back towards Judea and went through areas of Phoenicia, Samaria, using it as an opportunity of encouragement to let other believers know that even Gentiles, not just Jews, Gentiles had become followers of Christ and had been changed by the gospel message. And then there is this theme we have seen throughout the book of Acts. They reported all that God had done through them. I love this theme in scripture because this because things happened, because they understood the gospel, that God intervened, they knew that his intervention included what happened through them. This was not at all about trying to earn back anything, but a response of being God's possession is to then be used by God. Verse five, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. Luke then says that some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, he says the believers. Luke doesn't differentiate if these were second-class citizens in the kingdom. He called them believers, he used this term, which he used also for those who were appointed and accompanying Paul and Barnabas, which tells me something. In fact, it corrects something in me. I want to be judge, jury, and executioner. Judge Dredd, anyone? Does anyone? No? Just me? Okay, the Sylvester Stallone version? I love that movie. So because they were misled, this did not mean that they were also not saved by grace. What? Now, I say that, and I know that can be taken too far. What about other religions? What about, and sorry if this is offensive, I'm just gonna name some, what about Mormons? They're misled, I agree. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, they are, unfortunately, based on what the text says. What about Muslims? Well, the real question for whatever religion you believe, and what I believe, it all comes down to one thing. What do you do with Jesus? Or as Jesus asked Peter and the other disciples in Matthew 16, but what about you, he asked, who do you, or who do you say that I am, Jesus asked Peter. So church, what do you do with Jesus? The reality is that once again, talk is cheap. This is the Lord God Almighty with the disciples. He's talking to them and he just, and uh, Peter's gonna eventually say that he's the son of the living God, but Peter doesn't always act like that. And if you confess that he's the son of the living God, but you don't act like it, talk is cheap. But eventually, when equipped with the Holy Spirit, which we read on to see, he began to actually live like Jesus is the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Luke doesn't differentiate these Hebrew believers just because they were currently being misled and misunderstanding some type of theology. But what do you do with Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Hear me. We don't convert anyone. We introduce people to Jesus, the Jesus that we know. Not the Jesus of our opinions, but the Jesus of the word. Because God in his plan said that he was knowable and he even gave you ways to know him revealed in his word. 
So the elders and apostles met together to discuss this question, the question of what do we expect of people coming to God, similar to what you guys were talking about, but some of you had some really honest, good answers, and some of you were funny. But this is a pretty profound question, especially as the gospel message had continued to flourish and spread. What do you expect of people coming to God? So they talk about it, verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us, Peter, a Jew. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter then gets up and he testifies to what God had done through him. And for the gospel message, which was an invitation, not just to the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Peter addresses that God knows the heart of those who believe and gifted them the Holy Spirit as confirmation of their salvation. But then he asks this question. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? Peter, like any good preacher, asks a rhetorical question that shows how ludicrous the assumption about this false teaching is. Why tempt or test God? Why expect God to have to repeat himself? It is by grace, not by works, and yet this false teaching is attempting to affirm an anti-grace message. Peter then points out that not even their Jewish ancestry could perfectly keep the law, not just circumcision, but the entire Mosaic law. And so if they couldn't keep it, why would these Gentiles then be expected to? Talk about evidence of being a Pharisee. We don't do this, but we are expecting others to do it. A Pharisee, or really a legalist, hides their sin and then expects others to be perfect, or at least hide their sin as well as they do. One of the things I appreciate so much about this community is a culture that seems to have uh, come to be, which is that being perfect is not a prerequisite to being God's possession. Being perfect is not a prerequisite to being God's possession. Don't clean yourself up. One of my mentors used to say, that's like putting lipstick on a pig. Okay, I guess. I don't totally understand that, but all right. We don't strive for perfection. We follow the one who is perfect. So what does Peter then point to after explaining how the law isn't kept? Verse 11, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Testify. I love Peter's response. And may I just point out that while these Judaizers, those were the people that were saying that you had to be circumcised first, were attempting to say salvation was unattainable without first being circumcised, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, in just a moment, will all point out that Gentiles were already being saved without any circumcision. Ray Stedman's a pastor that I listened to. He's passed on to be with the Lord, but he pointed out the silliness of this assumption many years ago that you first had to be circumcised to be saved. Here's what he says. These Judaizers had been saying to the Gentiles, without circumcision, you cannot be saved. But they were ignoring one very stubborn fact. Those Gentiles were already saved. God had already been saving Gentiles without asking anybody's permission to do so. And he was doing it without any ritual or even any reference to the law of Moses. And with this point, they could not argue. 
That was extremely important because it forced them to take note of God's activity. They saw that God was already doing what they said could not be done, and thus God was overruling them. All right, here's my takeaway from my own sermon, and I loved writing the sermon because I learned so much. You wanna know how Christianity really works. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you in on the secret. Christianity is about God overruling you and I. That is what Christianity is about. Peter says salvation is from one place. Through the grace of our Lord Jesus, that is where salvation rests and is always available, nothing more, nothing less. Talk about a binding message. Look at me, look at me. If you are saved, if salvation has come to you, if you identify with Jesus Christ, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus, friends. Not your effort, not your family tree, not your baptism, not your intelligence, not your potential, not your humility, not your religious pedigree. None of that makes a lick of difference eternally. It is only through the grace of our Lord Jesus that any of us have been saved. And that's why we worship him. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Luke once again points out what God had done through Barnabas and Paul via wonders and signs among the Gentiles. When they finished, verse 13, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, just as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. James, then pointing back to the Hebrew scriptures, affirms what Peter had just said. He applied Amos, a prophet, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, and says that God's plan has always been for both Jew and Gentile to receive the grace of God found in the person and the work of Jesus. And then he says this, verse 19. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That verse is why I'm up here preaching even though I barely have a voice. One of my most thought of verses in all of scripture because ever since I became a Christian, I wonder how much tradition and religion is expected of people like myself who did not grow up in a Christian home. In order to first come to God, the Christian culture seems to be, first you have to clean yourself up. In order for God to then accept you. But the reality is, the gospel says that God accepts you not because of anything you've done, but because of Jesus, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus. In Titus, Paul writes, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Supriya, you and I are getting this tattoo. Remember, we talked about this. And this is the message that I have committed my life to. Do I want people to know Jesus? Heck yeah. I hella do. 
Northern California. But it all begins with realizing that Jesus did the work on your behalf for your salvation. You did not contribute or do anything that made Christ's work less necessary for your salvation. So church, those who are yet to come to Christ, people in our lives, our family members, people possibly sitting with us, possibly that we work with, people that we go to school with, we should not expect things from them that are anything but believing the grace of our God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. High five to me. It is the only message that one can receive in order to be saved. But then James, again, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who did not believe, by the way, and then came to trust Jesus Christ as his Lord after he saw Jesus alive, after he died, here's how he writes his own letter to the church in Jerusalem. He says, calls himself James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James did not believe, saw Jesus alive after he died, did believe. I love the question, how many of you have siblings? How hard would it be for your sibling to convince you that they were God? <laughs> James has a compromise. As far as what the apostles and elders can ask of the Gentiles coming to Christ, not as expectations of salvation, but as ways to not cause the Jewish believers to stumble. He says this, verse 20, instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James has a recommendation. And being God incarnate's half-brother probably gave James a lot of clout and respect. He says that these Gentiles believers should abstain from food polluted by idols, meaning food that was offered as worship to idols and then sold by the temple butchers. Why? Because idolatry should be so repulsive to the Jewish community that anything connected to idolatry should not be associated with. And then he says they should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the Gentile culture of paganism sexually was one of no commitment and all about sensual pleasure. I'm so glad we don't have that anymore. But what James, I believe, was implying was that in Christ, God had given intimacy as a gift within a committed covenantal relationship, but that was yet to be adopted by most of the Gentiles, and James mentions this. And from the meat, he says, of strangled animals and of blood. For centuries, Jews had been taught to stay away from things that were unclean. And so eating of a strangled animal meat and blood was considered unkosher and offensive to the Jewish dietary laws. Now listen, just because James told these Gentiles some things they could do to make it easier for them to associate with the Jewish believers doesn't make it a law that when abided makes you any more saved or not. But acting in ways that doesn't cause others to stumble is considerate. And it has a lot to do with the maturity of each of us as believers. Now, if you haven't been preached to yet, here you go. I and you, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, have a lot of freedom. We are not justified by our actions nor our morals. But as we mature, we begin to think of ourselves less and we prioritize the message of the gospel of grace more. 
So living in such a way so the gospel of grace could be heard and not patted on its head or ignored because of the way we're living was very important to James when it came to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. After this meeting of believers and leaders and elders and apostles, oh my, they then chose to send some of the leaders along with Barnabas and Paul to deliver to the church in Antioch while also being able to explain this letter that they came up with. And here it is. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Silsiyah. No, no, that was wrong. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by the word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. I appreciate this very clear letter to these churches written ultimately by the Holy Spirit. You know how I know that? Because it's in scripture. By the Holy Spirit through these elders and apostles and leaders. And it begins with stating some within the ranks of the church in Jerusalem went and taught a different message that troubled many. Now I know, I, at least I think, I believe you know this church if you've been attending here a while. But perhaps it needs to be communicated again. We take the word of God very seriously, but we are not legalistic. At least we try not to be. We take the word of God very seriously. While it's possible to become legalistic when you're trying to be about this, we attempt within accountability among the elders and the staff and the teaching team and the lay leaders and the congregation to be consistently pointing to the gospel of grace as our emphasis and we point and end the point so we teach the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation as the gospel is the central message and the filter for what we are saying, and we want to maintain that how we view the word of God is with the saving grace of our Lord Jesus as the main interpretation of all of the scriptures. And we are tethered to that. So if you begin to hear us teach in ways that maybe the point of the sermon was, well, you can just try harder, or you can be better, or you can live your best life now, but something is off because the gospel of grace says that we cannot work our way to God, nor are we the point, nor is this life the only one that we're concerned with, but we have a mission because God saved us to make him known. Verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together. They delivered this letter the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. 
After spending some time there, they sent off, were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they, had many other, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. You can close your Bibles. Worship team, you can come on up. And here's how I'd like to close. I'd like to pray. I'd like to give us an opportunity to pray. We're going to have a few songs that we're going to sing, and those songs are going to be gracious. But church, I think for us, there's a response that can take place when we read something like this and we hear about how often we become legalistic, how often we try to make things about anything but the gospel of grace, how often without even meaning to, we add to the gospel, which is the spiritual teaching of the Antichrist. I really believe in scripture, maybe not in society, but in scripture, when the word repent was used, it was always an invitation, not a threat. It was an invitation to be intimate with God. And while repentance is something that all of us, if we become Christians, first did, at some point we realize, man, I failed you, Lord, I'm sorry, and we change direction. Even though we might have all done that originally, and spiritually, and mentally, and possibly physically, we changed direction, and we committed our lives to Christ. Repentance is also something that we continually do. Not to be saved, not to stay saved, But because we understand the cost of grace that saved us, we ought to pursue the perfect one, which means we turn from the things that are un-Christ-like. So I'm kind of shooting fish in a barrel. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Today, can we be honest about this? So if this passage and this sermon was convicting, I recommend you do not wait to repent. Well, I'll think those things over when I get home. No, you won't. You'll turn on Netflix. But do some personal reflection now. We got space in the service as we gather together, as we begin to sing these songs that have grace. Jesus as the point. Perhaps you need to repent of believing that you deserve grace. Perhaps you need to repent because you believe others shouldn't receive grace. Perhaps you expect things from other people that God doesn't expect from them himself. Or maybe you're like most of us who have just ran or briskly walked so far from God that you feel distant and disconnected from him. Repentance is an opportunity for you to turn back. And the crazy thing about our Lord, the crazy thing about King Jesus King, our Savior, even if we've ran far, far away, and I have Achilles tendonitis and can't run at all, but no matter how far we've walked away from him, no matter what we've done, as soon as we turn back, he's right there to meet us, church. That is how good our God is. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity in prayer to do some work with the Lord. Laura's going to begin to play, and I'm going to begin to pray, and why don't you just talk to God in your minds, under or over me as I speak, but think about those things that maybe you need to turn from and allow the Lord to do the work in your heart. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage. I have been, man, when we said we were going to do Acts, this was the passage I wanted to preach. 
I don't know if the message was any good, but I know, Lord, that it spoke to me and it challenged me and I've been repenting all week. And so, Lord, for any of us that are in this place that need to repent because we've said yes to you years ago, but we've ran from you, Lord. I pray, God, that you would do work and they wouldn't feel this obligation or guilt, but they would feel the grace of our Lord Jesus, knowing that you love them perfectly now, just like you did when you saved them. And God, for those of us who are yet to come to you, God, I pray that you'd stir something in us. I pray that you'd stir an affection in us to want you because it is not by what we do, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in King Jesus alone. So God, I pray that if that's what's stirring in us, that we'd be willing to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I turn to you and would you forgive me of my sins? And we thank you for Jesus's work on our behalf. Lord, I thank you for this church and this community that I can be honest and real with. And I pray, God, that that would stir something in your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.